hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to kill on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much of more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went on to conspire against him how to destroy him. And there's Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. Particularly you'll see that it has to do not so much with observing the Sabbath, but how to observe the Sabbath. Because all through the Old Testament and the law of God, the Sabbath was meant to be a day uniquely for rest, unlike any other day. And it was hotly debated, hotly debated for many years and even years after Christ, exactly how to appropriate the Sabbath into a real practical life, a day of living. And so here they try to ensnare Jesus deliberately, knowing the kind of debates that surround this kind of, uh, you could say, theological controversy. And it results with Jesus making great claims about himself. That he said of himself that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And he demonstrates his lordship and particular authority. And that he heals a man with a paralyzed hand on that day. It has to do with authority. It's a story about um, authorial intent. If you write a document or you say something and someone misinterprets you. You get the right to say, but that's not what I meant. Because you're the one that wrote the document. You're the one that said something. Um, I remember years ago, I was helping a friend uh, move into a new house. And um, there was a few waves of uh, people that would help him do this moving. And there would be boxes and supplies. And so what was funny is the uh, catchphrase we used was, whenever uh, someone would stop by to help, uh, they would just say, well, it's your house, and say, what do you want me to do? You know, like, here's a bunch of boxes. Where do you want me to put these boxes? It's your house, you know. And then there's a bunch of supplies, or maybe tools are supposed to go uh, in the garage or so. You say, where do you want these tools to go? Hey, it's your house. You're going to live here. Where do you want? And so it was a funny catchphrase, and every once in a while, different, different um, people, friends would show up, sometimes others, sometimes me. Now, there was one time he put a, uh, like, 500-pound wood burner in the basement. And fortunately, I can tell you, I wasn't there that day to help uh, but it was his house. It was kind of like, where do you want this 500-pound wood burner? Um, which is a very uh, tentative question to ask. Where, it's your house. 
hopefully like one foot from there, here. I don't have to carry it across the whole uh, building. But actually, the day that I was there, um, uh, he wanted to tear down a, a wall between his kitchen uh, and his uh, dining room. And so I said, uh, where do you want this wall to not be here anymore? It's your house. Uh, but what's funny is, uh, I don't recall this exactly, maybe kind of embarrassment. I did do this, or someone else was with me. But the guy had a, a saw and was starting to cut the studs in the house and cut right through his electric line. And, uh, and then we said, well, it's your house. <laughs> and uh, you, you wanted to pay for free labor, and you got, you got every bit of that. Um, but it had to do with the idea that it was his house. He could say whatever he wanted. If you didn't want a wall there, move the wall. If you wanted to put this there, put that there. We're here to help you. It's your house, right? Um, that, that idea is very pressing here in Jesus explaining the Sabbath. It is his house. He's Lord of the Sabbath. They're not seeing any of that. He has the authority to say certain type of things. See, the disciples, they say, your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. That is, you don't, Jesus, you don't have the authority to tell them to do these things on this day. It's not your right. It's not your liberty. It's not your justice. It's not your prerogative. You don't have that kind of authority, authorial intent. This isn't your day. And then Jesus corrects them and says, yes, it is. That, that is a high-handed thing to say, to say that the Sabbath was his day. Why are we here? Here's a question for us to consider today. Why are you and I here today? The Jewish Sabbath is a Saturday. Today is Sunday. Why are we here? The answer, the answer Jesus gives is that today is his day. So he is Lord of the Sabbath, and we also worship him on the Lord's day. He fulfills these things that are put through the Old Testament, the new covenant, the new song, the new table. We all talk about previous months ago, weeks ago, we talk about how he has given us a new covenant. He has given us a new law. He has given us a new table to eat in which the very blood is his own drink, which is his blood on the cross, the blood of the new covenant. He has given us a new song. We can sing things about the glory of God as we saw in Revelation and in the Psalms that no one else could have ever sang before. And here we find out that Jesus also has the authority to give us a new day, calling it the Lord's Day. The day of his resurrection. The day of his conquest over all other days. There's many things here that come between a debate between Jesus and the Jews. Particularly here, we have to look at what Matthew says about Jesus' ministry. Because he understands, as Matthew puts together this gospel, this compilation testimony of Jesus Christ... It was evident that it would be misinterpreted. And oftentimes it has been misinterpreted many ways. He says at the beginning of his ministry, to begin the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first discourse or address to articulate his mission, his purpose in the world. He says in Matthew five seventeen, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
but to fulfill the law. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or a dot from the law will pass away. And the one who lessens the least of these laws will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Now that is some verse you take and you hold and you put it in your back pocket and then you keep reading through the gospel of Matthew and realize, but everywhere I turn, it seems like he's trying to abolish the law. And particularly here on the law, the fourth commandment is to honor God on Saturday. Saturday. How can we say that Jesus is not tearing down or abolishing the law? The word abolish, kataluo, means to tear down, to dismantle, to undo perhaps a foundation or a building, to abolish it. And he says, I am not doing that. It might look like I'm tearing this thing down. I am not. That guy invited me over to help his, fix up his house. It might have looked like we were destroying his house. And actually, we really might have been. But really, it was for a renovation. It was to make it better. It was to make it better. It was to fulfill a purpose. And Jesus says here, I am not abolishing the law. I am fulfilling the law. That is, everything that the law and the prophets were to say was for a purpose. There was an authorial intent. Someone wrote that out, superintending an end to these laws. We read the Old Testament often and think it through and think that's obscure or bizarre. God wrote it with absolute inscrutable wisdom who knows the beginning from the end. He is the Alpha and Omega. He wrote the first chapter and he knew the last chapter. We didn't know the last chapter. Jesus is saying, I am bringing them out to their end. I'm showing you what this law was all planned for. The existence, the blueprints of the house is one thing. To have the law, the, the word, the written word, prescript will of God, but to actually bring it to fruition. Not just the blueprints, not just the spreadsheet, but to actually build the thing. Create the thing the law is pointing for. To build the house itself, that is what Jesus is saying he is doing. I am fulfilling that. I am bringing it into existence. He does this everywhere. All throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you see Jesus explaining fulfillment. This is to fulfill. This is to fulfill. The phrase occurs many, many times throughout the whole gospel. In Matthew 3, Jesus is to be baptized. He approaches John and says, you must baptize me for baptism of repentance, where all these sinners go to be repented, repenting of their sins and be cleansed. And then John says, how could I do that? Why should I baptize you? You have no sin. You are the righteous son of God. And then Jesus says, you must baptize me so that we might fulfill all righteousness. That is, I have to do this. I have to align myself with all of the sinful people that I will save. I have to come into their sin, identify myself with their sin, and I must do this to fulfill their righteousness. I must bring them to perfect righteousness. Jesus was baptized for you. He associated himself with sinners who need a baptism of repentance so that you would actually repent someday. Whatever year that was, the first time you ever repented of Christ, of your sins to Christ. It was because he was baptized 2,000 years ago. He was being baptized for you. He was walking through the waters for you. Later on in Matthew 8, we're told that many people come and they all seek to be healed. People are oppressed with demons and sick and all these miracles that Jesus does. He heals all who are sick. And then Matthew says, this was done so that what was spoken of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Fulfilled. And the law of the prophet was, he took our illnesses and bore our disease. 
Jesus had to heal them because he came to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. He is here to heal so that he might fulfill. There's a purpose to his mission. There's a purpose to his life. And then when it comes to the law, a while ago as we've worked through Matthew, we preached through the Sermon on the Mount. And most everybody approaches the Sermon on the Mount usually to say, here's Jesus uprooting all of the law and changing it around. Right after he prefaces it by, by the way, before I go and tell you about all this law, don't ever think that I'm abolishing it. I'm fulfilling it. Because everything I say right now is going to sound like I'm abolishing it. And so Jesus speaks about anger. And he says, you heard that it was said, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be liable to judgment. And Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anyone who says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus pits the pharisaical interpretation of the law and says, oh, don't just think it's just all about murder. If you harbor hatred in your heart, you might not be convicted by the civil magistrate, but you will go to hell. But you will go to hell. Now, Jesus is not changing the law. He's fulfilling it. He's actually giving it the way it really is. You see? He didn't add to that. Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Leviticus uh, Deuteronomy 19.6. The man that deserves to die is the one who hates his brother in his heart. Just it's one verse. Most people haven't read it. You read it over, you don't see it. But that's what Jesus is saying. I am not giving you a new law. I am fulfilling the law that you don't know or do. Don't hate anybody. Or you'll go to hell. Lust. He says... You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. That's not new. The tenth commandment, do not covet. What is lust but coveting in a sexual desire? You could lust after someone's sports car. You can lust after someone's house. And you can lust after someone's wife. You can covet them in your heart. It's not a crime. No one knows between your ears. It's in your heart. Your sexual lust, God sees. And you're condemned. Jesus is not making a new law. He's showing them the law that they never knew or were obedient to. It was already there in the 10th commandment. Divorce. He said, you should not commit adultery. I say to you, everyone who divorces, except for sexual morality. And here you have this passage in Deuteronomy 24. If some man finds something unfavorable in his wife, some indecency, usually interpreted as sexual morality, some sexual unfavorable thing, there was grounds for divorce. Jesus says it. He is fulfilling the law. He's bringing it out in interpretation. Do not take oaths. Let your yes be yes or your no be no. Jesus is not saying never take oaths. In Matthew 26, 63, he himself takes an oath. 
What he's saying is, do not lie in your oaths. Do not swear by heaven, for that is God's throne. Do not swear by earth, for that is his footstool. You cannot make one hair white or black. That is, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do not swear by arbitrary things and so think that you are writing legal script to circumvent certain obligations that you make with your mouth. Do not get all legalese, is what he's saying. Do not be tricky with your words. Make your oaths, make them serious, make them sure, because you will have to give an account on every word you've ever spoken. So make it wise. He's fulfilling the law. He says as far as retaliation, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. He who slaps you on the cheek, turn and offer him the other. Now wait a minute, the law says, the law of retaliation, the lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is good. That's in the Bible. That's in the law. What Jesus is saying, do not bring your civil legal matters into your personal life. That is, do not make everything a big deal. If someone is actually trying to harm you, hurt you, kill you, punch you, shoot you, defend yourself. If they're trying to slap you, right? If they're just trying to offend you, disrespect you, Make more of a moral hurt than a bodily hurt. Offer them the other. Do not pursue them. Love them. If they want to go one mile with you, go with them too. Give. Be, be, be ashamed. Let them offend you. That is your opportunity to love them. So Jesus does all this to show truly what the law is. And now we get to this point where it is on a Saturday. And he is with his disciples. And you have to ask yourself. We have to ask ourselves. Is he just throwing away the whole Sabbath now? Is he abolishing the Sabbath? Or is he fulfilling it? Here he says. That he is Lord of the Sabbath. It is at that time. He went through the grain fields. And the disciples were hungry and they plucked heads of grain so that they might eat. At that time, what time was it? It was right after he finished saying, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I am gentle and lowly of heart. You will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Flip the page. Let's talk about the Sabbath. Jesus is that Sabbath. It was all pointing to him. That rest, that day of rest that we should have. Our bodies need it. Our minds will break. You will work yourself into the ground. You will worry yourself into the ground. You were not made for that. You were made for more than the grind. You were not made for your boss. You were not made for your boss. He is not your God. Your paycheck is not your God. Your company is not your God. Your kids are not your God. Your house is not your God. Your grass is not your God. God is your God. And he says, stop. Quit it. Look up to the heavens. And remember that you were made for more. You were made for more. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Sabbath was this time of holy rest. In the Ten Commandments, it's the fourth one in Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. Seven days is a Sabbath rest. The Lord, unto the Lord. A Sabbath, here it is, to the Lord. 
It is a Sabbath to the Lord. That is, it is a worshipful rest. Just resting is not a resting to the Lord. It is a rest. It is a peace. It is a tranquility. It is a singularity of mind, a singularity of heart, directed directly to God and no other things. This is what we need for everything. All the idols of our culture, all the pressings of our time and our schedule are screaming for your attention. And if you give to them, you will waste your life. If you give to them, you will take one week after the next week, after the next week, to the next month, to the next month, and forget your God. Take a rest to the Lord. And why? It says in the commandment, on it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh he rested. So it's a memory of God's ability to create, his creative power. He is the creator God. He created the world in six days and completed his work, summing up resting. We work in cycles of saying, we will work really hard. We will get our hands very dirty. We will go to bed and put our heads on the pillow and fall asleep immediately because we are so tired for worshiping God through our work so that when it is time to rest, we will really rest. We will be completely shut off. We can be completely focused to God, our families, our home, caring about the things he's given us. So that when we are so rested, we will wake up on that next day and get right back to it and worship him with everything we have on the Mondays and the Tuesdays. All the worship that is our work. But we do all this because it models God's power to create. He created everything and then said, now I am done. I have closed that chapter. What all I have made is good and beautiful. And he rests and relished and enjoyed that. That is the reason we should do that. We model after him the courses and the schedules of our life. But not only that. See, a Sabbath is a holy day of rest and worship because of God's creation. But it's also a holy day of rest and worship because of God's recreation. Because not only of what he has done, but what is he doing? What he did one time past was create. What he's doing now is recreating. He's making all things new. He is redeeming. Deuteronomy 5, we're told again about the Sabbath, the law of the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Six days do your work, seventh day rest. Remember this because, it says in Deuteronomy 5, you were slaves in Egypt. And God brought you out with a mighty hand. So now we remember... We rest so that we might remember God's power in creation. But we also rest that we might be properly oriented to his work, present work in redemption. He is doing something in this world. He didn't just create the world and leave it. He created the world. And so that he might recreate the world, redeem the world. Adam never got to have that kind of rest. He sinned in the garden, never got to enter into the full rest of God. There is work to be done. There is slavery. Egypt, they're working for Egypt for months. They never get any rest. They are truly slaves. He's saying, remember this rest. You are not a slave. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus. Giving up this day is like giving up your freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So be free, not in a high metaphorical spiritual sense, but truly be free with your minutes. Be free with your mind. Be free with your schedule. Stop. And remember that he is your Lord and he commands you to be free, to not work yourself to the ground. 
like they used to in Egypt. Remember Egypt and now go have fun. See, that's the beauty of the Sabbath. To enjoy these things in God's presence. Leviticus 23, 3 particularly says, Six days you shall work, seventh shall be a rest. Now it says it will be a holy rest, and it says it will be a holy convocation. You will not do any work, for it is a Sabbath to the Lord. It is worshipful. The phrase there, it will be a holy convocation, is a particular word having to do with religious assembly. For anyone who says, well, the Sabbath was just about resting. It was resting so that God's people will gather in what is called a holy convocation. The Hebrew word is mikra. It also has the connotation of reading. To mikra is to read or to mikra is to assemble, assemble in a holy gathering like this. Not a secular gathering, not a meeting of some sort. Particular word, technical word for gathering to worship. That's what it was for. Now, in the ancient world of Israel, people were scattered all over the country. It's not like every seven days they got on their donkey and walked down to Jerusalem to go to the temple for Sabbath. That'd be like saying we're going to go to Washington, D.C. every Sunday. We just don't do that. That's not practical. It's not how life works. What they had was a synagogue system where all throughout the area, things that looked very similar to a church where there would be a public reading of scripture, assembly, and singing psalms all over the nation of Israel. And that every Saturday, they went to synagogue, a holy convocation, to actually obey this law. So when people say, I, you know what, I just can't go to church because, well, I just feel closer to God when I'm fly fishing in the river. Or you know what, I just feel really close to God when I'm out on the golf course on a beautiful Sunday morning. It's like, no. (laughs) No. That's good. And that's true. But there is a unique time that God has commanded to say, this is a holy convocation. There is something you will get out in the stream, and it will be beautiful in God's presence there. But you will not get what you get here, there. And you will not get what you get there, here. There is something to your spiritual health that happens in this. This convocation. And what, it has to be on a system of sevens. You need this. You will forget this. You, our hearts, we are sheep. We are sheep, are we not? Would you not run off a cliff? Aren't you, don't you have the spiritual foresight of a mole? Like you can't see barely your own hand in front of your head. We are beset with sins on every side. The world lies to us every minute. We need this. We need this. And you can't go too long before you've shifted. Before you've lost your first love. Luke four sixteen. And he came to Nazareth. Where he had been brought up. Jesus. Jesus' own life. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. As was his custom. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. If it was him, the sinless son of God. Every Saturday in the, in, in the synagogue. Hearing Isaiah. Worshipping with God's people. 
loving the young, loving the old, being in a community where people are there and involved in your life. If Jesus does that, what are we? What are we to say? So the issue is not that Jesus is observing or not observing the Sabbath. He observed the Sabbath. What is the issue here? Their problem with him is not his observing the Sabbath, but the way he's observing it. The manner in which he observed the Sabbath. He says, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. They're not allowed to do this. Pick heads of grain. In the Mishnah, Jewish writings, they list 39 things that are not permitted on the Sabbath. Many of them are just bizarre, and uh, we'd have to really know what's going on to read that. But some of them were reaping and threshing. In Exodus 34, 21, it says that six days you shall work, seventh day you shall rest, you shall not plow, and you shall not harvest. And here is Jesus' disciples harvesting little pieces of grain. They're not harvesting for a whole entire farm. They're not doing their farm work. They're just trying to get a meal for a day. Absolutely ridiculous interpretation. The point here is they're trying to trap Jesus and they're trying to show him some fault. And Jesus comes up with three particular answers that are important for us to see today. He responds to them with three distinct examples. He says, look to David. He pulls out the law and then he brings up a verse from Hosea. And with these three, he's saying, this day was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This day was made to love God. This day was made to love each other. If this day turns into something else, you've lost it. Why? I wrote the book. Authorial intent. I wrote that law. Exodus 20, that's mine. Leviticus, that's, I wrote that book. I know what it's about. Believe me. You're making it a mess. You're making it legalistic. You're making it a burden. And right before he corrects them all about the Sabbath, he says, now you take my yoke upon you. Don't take the yoke of these foolish Pharisees. They don't know what they're doing. They're blind men leading the blind. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'll teach you about the Sabbath. I'll teach you how to rest. I'll teach you to have peace with all the burdens of your guilt and conscience and sin. But also just the work of not having to go to the office the next day. I will make you be free. Listen to me. I'll be your teacher. And they don't like that. The whole point of this is they're saying, by what authority do you have to contradict all the rabbis? I wrote the book. You commented on the book, and you did a terrible job, and I wrote it, and I'm here to correct it. This is the interaction. This is what's going on. Particularly, remember, Jesus told us that John the Baptist was the messenger that was to come before him. Prophesied in Malachi 3.1. Think this through. Malachi 3.1. There will be a messenger to prepare the way for, Malachi says, the messenger of the covenant which is in reference to that prophecy, Jesus. Malachi 3.1 interpretation, Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. John is the messenger that announces the messenger of the covenant. Jesus, the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant, is the one who actually wrote the book. And he told, we're told in Malachi 3.1 that the messenger of the covenant will come. The Lord whom you seek will come, and he will come to his temple. What? Think of yourself as an ancient man reading that prophecy. The messenger of the covenant, a man, will come. 
The Lord whom you seek, he'll come. And he'll come to his temple. His temple? That's God's temple. How could the, this man come to his temple? You're talking about the temple of Yahweh? The temple in Jerusalem? He's going to come to that one? And he's going to call it his? Yep, that's exactly what he's going to do. And by the way, that day, it's his day too. And that was so offensive for them. Who are you to say you're Lord of the Sabbath? Lord of the Sabbath, that's the Lord's, that, that's Yahweh's day. Are you Yahweh? Now you're getting it. Yes, that's the point. He's saying that. He's saying that. David, he says, and Saul, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Those who were with him enter the house, the house that is the temple. David was fleeing Saul for his life. He's with men and other soldiers, and he's hungry, and he's running for his life. It is wartime situation. It is wartime ethics. And they need food. They're starving. And they run straight in to the temple. In 1 Samuel 21, there's a priest there, Ahimelech. And he lets him in. He brings out this table of showbread. In the temple, in the holy place, there were 12 loaves of bread that were to be set there perpetually. Every Saturday, fresh loaves were placed there. And every Saturday, the priests had to eat the previous loaves. It was a symbol of the 12 tribes of Israel having communion fellowship, sharing a table with Yahweh by representation of the priests who were allowed in there. And only the priests were allowed in there. And only the priests were allowed to eat it. And David comes in and says, I'm hungry. And they go in there and they get the bread and just give it to him. And violate all the laws that say that should never happen. And Jesus says, why is that okay? Because the symbol, the ceremony, all the representation is important and good. But never to the neglect of hurting the human life. David's men needed that. In that particular time, it was fine to break all those laws. The bread was made for them. The symbol was for the priests. The law, he says. The Levites, he says, he goes to Leviticus and says, Have you not read in the law on the Sabbath that the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and that they're guiltless? Numbers 28, every Saturday they were to offer two extra sacrifices. So four sacrifices every Saturday where the priests had to do all the work of birching the animal, lighting the fire, putting them on, on the altar, and then also lifting the animal, skinning the animal, gutting, all this work they're doing. And Jesus says everything that they're told to do violates everything the Sabbath says not to do. Why? Because it's for a purpose of loving God. It is worship to God. See, the point of this rest is that you love people, hungry soldiers running for their life. Okay, give them bread. It breaks the laws. It doesn't matter. There's a higher law behind that law. Preservation of life. Well, what about the priests? They're offering sacrifices to God. They're loving God. If you, can, if you can manage to twist God's law in such a way so that you're not loving God with his law, you've made a wrong turn somewhere. And that's where Jesus is saying, you have no idea what this is about. And then he says, this is why you don't get it. And he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6, and he says, only know what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus loves love. Jesus loves love in such a way that there is a moral law. There is an absolute law that cannot change. And there is ceremonial law that is addressed and, and changed all the time. We don't worship on Saturday. We don't have a temple. We don't offer animals. 
Because Jesus did not come to abolish the law, it looks like he abolished the law. Where is the temple? Where are the sacrifices? He did not abolish the law. He fulfilled the law. He took out the wall. He remodeled the building. And he says, by the way, what did he do when he died? That curtain that separated the holiest part of God's house from the less holiest part of God's house was broken open. He remodeled the house and he let us in. Now he did not tear the house down. He changed the house. He made it more modern. He made it more accessible for wretched sinners like you and I. He is fulfilling the law. He is fulfilling the Sabbath. We went far. But we have to close by saying this. On Friday... On Friday, Jesus died on that cross. On Saturday, he was dead in the tomb. And on Sunday, the day he rose from the dead, is resurrection day. The day that he is declared Lord of the cosmos. If you come back from the dead, you're the guy. You own everything. You've broken the matrix. You know how the world works. You have conquered the grave. We worship today because not a muscle in his body moved on Saturday. He had a perfect rest in that grave. He rested in perfect death for you and I. He rested in such a way In such a way that he fulfilled the Sabbath for everything that it really means. Because when we go and die, we are laid out in scripture as going to our rest. But Jesus has sanctified that Sabbath. He has rested complete. Friday, do all the work of killing him. Saturday, you can't kill the Son of God on Saturday because you could break the Sabbath. Isn't that ironic? But that's the perfect irony that they were operating in. We have to take him off the cross tomorrow's Sabbath. Little do they know that him resting in that grave, him not doing one ounce of work as his dead corpse was rotting in the tomb, was for you, was for me. Don't you realize God's telling you to rest every day so that you remember that in not many more days from now you will be resting. You won't be able to do anything for death is coming for you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly of heart. You'll find rest for your souls. I've conquered the grave, he says. Your rest, I have won the death. See, the yoke of Christ is so light because the cross of Christ is so heavy. And the rest of Christ is so sweet because the rest of Christ was so bitter. Our rest in him is the sweet Sabbath that he has conquered the death. But his rest on Saturday was soaking up all the bitterness of our death. He soaked it up for a whole day and not a day longer. He had to be dead three days. He's killed partially away Friday. Saturday is his one full day in the grave. And then Sunday, even in that morning on Sunday when they come to find him, he said "Is no more. It is finished. The next day is over. I've met the third day. I am the resurrection and the life. And this is the Lord's day. It is Sunday. It is a day that demonstrate that I am the king of kings and lord of lords and I have conquered the grave. I am lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the dead. That is why we say 
Jesus is Lord. And that is why we as Christians understand he has the authority to say, now you start worshiping me on the first of the week. Because we have a lot of work to do. I'm making all things new. Dear Father God, we thank you. And we praise you, Lord, for this. That you have made the ultimate rest. Sleeping in that grave as you did. Lord, we'll never have to taste it. You've fulfilled the Sabbath. You've accomplished the Sabbath for us. And now it is your day. Lord, may we commemorate your coronation every Sunday. And then may we demonstrate your coronation every weekday. For you are Lord. You are our life. And you are the sweet Savior of our souls. We worship you and praise you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.